You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Shauna. I help connect tech companies with top tech talent. And today I'm your host. So welcome back to another Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by three senior leaders within the Australian technology industry, and we're here to discuss the topic. Um, And this topic is the journey to build your platform engineering team. We're going to cover many areas. Um, Some of these will be, for example, platform engineering team for different organizations. Um, Understanding the engineering maturity state of the organization and the team to build your backlog. Typical scenarios leading to formation of a platform engineering team or tribe, getting a platform engineering team started and into other areas such as platforms are used for for like enforcing and um, implementing cybersecurity both on design and runtime. So we're going to cover a lot in here. It's pretty exciting. Um, And it's almost like episode two of this platform engineering journey on the Evolution Exchange podcast. Um, But I've got three incredible leaders here today. Um, so I think before we get things kicked off, I'd love to do a little intro and I'm looking at Alejandro, if you want to kick things off and tell us a bit about yourself. Fantastic, Shauna. Um, thank you for inviting me to to this podcast. Really looking forward to sharing um, a lot of my experience over the last few years. Um, my name is Alejandro Sanchez Giraldo. I'm currently the head, so the head of quality and observability at DevOps One. And what we do at DevOps One is we look at helping teams around mobilizing platform engineering, application modernization, quality and security engineering within enterprises and enable teams to be more efficient at the way that they work. Um, I've worked in different industries and different companies here in Australia, from um, Optus to Qantas to CBA. And I thought, um, why not give consultancy a try and um, share my experience with lots of people. Incredible stuff. Thanks so much, Alejandro. Um, Paul, up next. Uh, hi. Thanks, uh, Sean, and uh, thanks for having me back. Um, so I'm Paul. Um, I've been working in the industry for about 30 years, uh, predominantly working with uh, product development companies. Um, my interest in platform engineering, I guess, uh, you know, spawned, evolved over time, uh, both as a producer and a consumer of platforms for various companies that I've um, worked with. Um, yeah, just interested in uh, learning more and sharing some of my experiences. Nice one. Thanks so much. Love to have you back again, Paul. Um, and last, but absolutely not least, David, tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, I'm David John. I've had a fair bit of background writing code, but spent the more recent half of my career securing it. And I'm really interested in bringing the security lens to this discussion because once you build a platform, there's all kinds of properties that you can bake into that platform, observability, scalability, et cetera. And I think security is a key one of those things. And I also want to speak briefly about how you can abstract beyond just security as a property of that platform, but more generally the risk parameters of the system that you're building and how those can be made instrumented and observable in a platform. Incredible stuff. And all ties in really, really nice, they have to say. So um, I think this will be a really interesting, insightful conversation, guys. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll kick things off and kind of get into the topics and the talking points that you've all brought here today. Um, and the first one, I suppose, which makes sense, Alejandro, you brought this was um, let's understand what is platform engineering and what is a platform engineering team for different organizations. 
Um, and I think you touched on that as well, Paul. But yeah, Leandro, do you want to um, dig into that? Take it away. Yeah, yeah, sure, Shana. Um, I guess part of it uh, is um, technology and technology terms keep morphing over the last few years because the technology keeps evolving. And then we have different organizations at different maturity states. I think the maturity state of an organization is really what highlights their understanding of a platform engineering team. Um, when we look at um, highly efficient and engineering focused enterprises, for them, a platform engineering encapsulates more uh, maybe what a development experience can be to enable the delivery of the products faster. And I think to David's point, it was around that security, infrastructure, quality, observability, all of these areas that enable engineers to deliver the capabilities faster. So then the platform engineering team becomes an internal development platform to help them deliver those capabilities faster. Now, when we look at something more like an enterprise that is more focused on products, uh, they still look at a platform engineering based on the infrastructure or the capabilities that they buy to provide those services. So it's more like a product defined model that then looks at, okay, what is it, what type of technology, what type of platforms I need to be able to deliver those capabilities. Um, I think those are the areas that I look as part of um, the understanding of really what a platform engineering uh, uh, teams can be. And then based on that is where you can start looking at, okay, how do you build that platform engineering team or what is it that you need uh, to, the, to build those capabilities internally? That's such a good insight. I'm always kind of asking myself that question, like, what is platform engineering? And every time I speak to another company or a different software engineer, it's another kind of analogy of what it is. But I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, who would like to add to that? <clears throat> I think, uh, I mean, it sounds, uh, everybody has a different sort of like lens at which they're looking at yeah. things. But at the end of the day, I think uh, what the engineers are actually doing is very uh, similar, same type of work. And it all boils down to, uh, you know, sort of like developer productivity, um, increased security, risk compliance, you know, automation. And, you know, I guess ultimately, once you get an organization to a certain, you know, sort of scale, you're able to leverage um, economies of scale and more specialization. And you have, you know, some individuals that are really focused and fixated on you know, DevOps, DevSecOps, you know, security risk and compliance. And, you know, if you architect your organization well, you're able to then sort of, you know, reduce the surface area for engineers that are working on, you know, products or, or internal sort of services, but at the same time, ensure that you're not, you know, adding any risk to the organization. You've got that, that freedom within, you know, guardrails and boundaries. Awesome. So I wanted to just mention what, we're doing X15 as a case study in this. So our uh, our business is with a venture scalar arm of, of CBA Commonwealth Bank. And we take financial technology ventures. We've got one product that's an online home loan, one where you plug in your personal details, gives you a credit score, et cetera. And we want to be able to build these at the pace of a fintech or a tech company, but ultimately they are products of the bank and generally they're leveraging the financial services licenses or very least the brand of the bank. So you need to have all of these guardrails and controls that the bank would normally require of a system. Mm. 
um, while still actually allowing developers to write code at the pace of a tech company. And that's this seemingly unresolvable tension, right? So I, w I won't go into that in too much detail now. We'll talk about it more throughout yes, the um, the podcast. But I just wanted to introduce that as a case study because what we've done is mm. build a platform called XStack that introduces all of these properties that are required in order to run a, a bank-grade system, whatever that means, but allows the developers to actually be tech company developers. Brilliant. Uh, that's what I'm excited to hear about today is how you've all sort of implemented these uh, platforms um, and then the sort of the the skills and the people that come along with that as well. Um, so yeah, really keen to hear all about that, David, for sure. Um, whenever you feel like it's right, timing. <laughs> um, I suppose this kind of is tying us into, um, and I know you. this is something you've all just mentioned there as well, is development experience. So um, platform engineering, it's something that's come up time and time again, especially around, you know, so what it really is, is essentially what it starts from is supporting the developers or the the teams that are building the end product or the end SaaS or platform. Let's talk about development experience and how platform engineering teams need to build this as an internal product. Because um, I think that's kind of where the difference kind of co comes from me. So tell us about that, guys. I think it was well, Alejandro, you brought that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no Sorry. No, 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 that's all right. So look, I think that the way that I look is there is the trend around development experience and how can it helps engineering teams to deliver their capabilities faster. Now, mm. when we talk about development experience, it could be many things from their IDEs to their set of code to their security practices, quality practices, uh, the infrastructure that they build on. So all of this encapsulates around their experience of how they can deliver things faster. Uh, a, a lot of that has 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 changed in the industry very rapidly over the last 10 years from like looking at virtualizations with, with AWS and Puppeteer to then looking at Docker, Kubernetes, and just continues to evolve. So what, mm -hmm. what engineers need has continually changed and their experience continually changes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the key part is that an inter so the internal teams are able to then build those capabilities for their engineers to deliver these uh, at a faster pace. And that is very much a concept from like the fintechs or the technology minded companies or technology centric companies that continue to drive that uh, engineering mindset into the company as part of, well, technology is something not that enables a product, but it's a product itself. So when we look at like, if, if, if we look at examples of a, of a bank, right? Um, it's not just the financial service they offer anymore, but it's the application itself and the capabilities that can offer. Or we look back at an airline and it's, it's not only just the flights, but it provides by the booking system and the loyalty systems. So it starts to become much more diverse. Therefore, that development experience has to be, has to be able to um, streamline the process of how they do all this variety of technology delivery. I think also that the product mindset is um, quite important in order to mitigate um, a big risk, which is uh, the platform sort of engineering team or tribe getting caught up with um, the technology, but not being focused on what the business value um, that they need to deliver. And um, 
the, the, the customer or the value chain uh, is a little bit different. So typically you've got one set of developers that are dealing with the end user or the end customer. And now you've got another set of, you know, engineers that are, that have the developers that are doing that as their customer. So um, in order to make sure that the, the engineers that are developing the product features and, and doing that in sort of like, you know, a secure and productive uh, way, um, you know, having sort of like that product mindset will, will, you know, will help sort of like really focus on, you know, what's the most important thing to do, uh, you know, sort of now. So, I mean, you can actually introduce the idea of, you know, technical product managers to help, you know, define a roadmap. So product teams can decide, well, are we going to wait for the platform to deliver this feature? Will we deliver it ourselves? If you've got a roadmap, you can make those types of, you know, decisions. So this communication and all sorts of, you know, product management discipline that you can bring to the table. I think the other thing that you get from building a platform is the ability to abstract away a lot of the common features that you need. So I could use an example in security. A really simple example would be that you have a policy that says every time you store um, personally identifiable information, that database needs to be encrypted at rest. And you could have a platform where by default, you have a database engine and it's full disk encryption in the database engine. And then you don't have to worry about the individual engineering teams implementing that policy. It's done in the platform. Now you can take, that's a very simple example. You can take that to all kinds of things about the way you, you scale, the way you shard the database, um, et cetera, et cetera. And abstracting that into the platform has multiple benefits, not just that it allows the engineers to focus on building the application rather than all these other things, it takes away the requirement to do so many point-in-time assessments. Because if you had that kind of policy, say the, the database encryption policy, and you had 10 different engineering teams, you would need something like a security review or a penetration test or some kind of audit that's going to come in on a regular basis and verify that they've in fact done this. Baking that into the platform, you can just have that as a reportable instrumentable feature in the platform and be able to report on it continuously without doing these expensive point-in-time assessments. I think there's some interesting nuances there as well. So I completely agree with um, with that. Um, one of the interesting things is that um, you can occasionally have um, friction between the product development teams and the platform teams. Um, in particular, you know, if if the if the platform is introducing some additional you know um, impositions upon the engineers, they've got to do things in a particular way now in order to keep the organization safe. Then you know. The, the engineers can sort of like say, well, this platform is slowing us down. That's one of the reasons why we're not sort of you know, hitting our milestones. Um, so one of the ways to avoid that problem is to sort of codify all of the requirements, you know, with regards to, you know, encryption at rest and what are all, your, all the controls that a team needs to adhere to. It's just on paper. It's just a document. And um, they can do that however they like. However, if they use the platform, they get that all for free. So it's kind of like a conscious opt-in decision. And by codifying it all, they can then see all of the, the value that they're getting out of the platform as well. Um, and uh, they would think, well, it would be madness of, of us to, to have to implement all of this ourselves. So sort of having that as sort of like a service and a checklist. Um, and then the, you know, part of the, the platform is to then, you know, provide the, that, that service and a checklist as an implementation. I think to Paul and David's point, all of it comes to the scalability and the economies of scale. So, well, in turn, 
to have an internal team, it, it kind of means that you need to have that need of the different teams that need to consume this. And it's looking at, well, what is it that needs to be addressed to speed up so you don't have multiple teams duplicating on the type of work. So really the, the, the need for the platform and also like if you think from a security perspective, it's quite a big emphasis at the moment, but yeah. that's more from a financial institution. If you look at the likes of uh, digital products like Canva or or a media company that is that doesn't have as much personal information, but the, the value of them is more about content, it changes also the profile of what that platform needs yeah. to be. So it, it is quite interesting of it, each organization will have their needs depending on what their value stream is, which Paul also mentioned. Which just one, out of these, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just <laughs> going to add one little small um, point just to sort of, I guess, bring, you know, these uh, tech companies a little bit more in line with um, some of the larger enterprises. Um, yeah. If a tech company wants to sell their products to a, um, a larger, you know, enterprise, which has, you know, uh, greater requirements around, you know, risk and compliance, they have to also provide that risk and compliance, they need to be able to provide the evidence that they're not going to be introducing vulnerabilities to that, that organization. So at the end of the day, regardless of whether you're a big enterprise or you're a you know, fast-moving tech company, um, a lot of the customers will require that you follow a lot of these sort of practices anyway. Mm. Excellent. So the, the, the things that you've mentioned here... Um, I think it's everyone's kind of brought it up as well. We're covering areas as a security, flat platforms and infrastructure, quality and observability. Um, so there, that's kind of like a recipe for what these teams will provide and economies of scale. Like you're saying, there's like which of these do you need at a certain time and in which in which scenarios? Is there like a a must have in all of them? You know, like for example, like you just said there, security might not be as much presence in one company as is in the other. But I hope the the I suppose those four points, which of those are most important do you think in platform engineering and what where does it really kind of add substance? <laughs> I, I That's would, a tricky one. You go Paul. Yeah, I would say quality because I think quality is yeah. a broad enough term that it covers a lot of um you know a lot of aspects. Um okay. I think I mean, the, the Dora report, um, you know, shows very clearly that if you focus on quality, um, it comes with productivity. And I think quality, you know, also includes, you know, security, risk compliance, cost optimization, all sorts of things. Nice. Yeah, I will, I will say there's a tough competition between quality and observability. Um, the reason for it is that they're very common platforms across, to Paul's point, in regards to quality, it touches everything. Uh, but that observability piece, unless you understand where you at, then you you'd be more acute at making the right decisions based on data that you that you get from either the consumers of your platforms or the customers or the end customers themselves. So those two are quite par and par. But like mm-hmm. to my earlier point, every industry will have different different priorities around those ones. Um, I think if you go, for example, government or financial institutions, they might say that security is important because that's what is probably more um, important for them as, mm. as a value stream. Awesome. I think that you could compress those properties into 
quality and observability. I always view my, my technical background is offensive style security work, finding vulnerabilities, writing exploits. And my view is that vulnerabilities are just a specific class of software bug. And, and if you do quality properly, that encapsulates doing security properly at the same time. So that, that I think covers that. But observability is really important as well because you will use this example, you're going into a highly regulated business and trying to sell them your product and they say we want security and scalability and blah, 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 blah. But how do you know you actually have these things? You can just say you have them. You can whip out an ISO 27001 certification or something, but how do they actually interrogate the fact yeah. that you have these things? And that's where an observability comes in. And I think observability is what also gives you, to my earlier point, the ability to avoid doing costly point-in-time assessments in order to prove constantly on an annual basis or whatever the frequency is that you actually have these properties in the system. Um, in a highly regulated environment like a bank, that becomes really important because you have the notion of controls in a formal risk management system and you have to constantly prove that your controls are functioning as they should be. And one of those controls would be, for example, all of the code that's written goes through DevSecOps pipeline and has scanning for vulnerabilities in it. But another one of those controls would be, say, in a home loan system, that you don't lend money to people who can't afford to pay it back. And there's all kinds of mathematical calculations about the risk you're willing to take on a home loan. And you have to be able to prove that you haven't done that. You can build that as an observability property into the platform the same way that you can make security observable. And then instead of having to constantly do spot audits of people's home loans and say, was this within lending criteria? It's an observable property from the platform. I think if you're, um, you're searching for like the, the winning term, like you have to go, you know, broader and broader to try and find a term which covers more and more. I guess the term that I quite like there is um, operational maturity and that, that covers, I think, probably the first thing you need with operational maturity would be observability. And then flowing on from that, you're going to get things like reliability, scalability, you know, data-driven decision-making and things like that. So I would say operational maturity might be the the, the broader term. Mm -hmm. I think before we move to the next question, Shona, what I will do is I might flip the question and go, not what is more important, but what I will build first if I, had, uh, if I was right. building a platform engineering team. And that will be the observability piece because then you're able to, as you put capabilities into your platform, you're able to understand what's coming in. Um, mm -hmm. So if you if if you look at it that way, then the importance come of observe because then as you observe, you're able to understand quality. As you understand quality, you're able to build security and then the platform itself starts to be consumer awesome. adopted. You might need to change the topic to observability. <laughs> do you know what guys before I do move on to another topic the next topic this word observability is like bouncing around our office at the moment and um, myself and my director just looked at each other today we're like wait what does that actually mean and I was like hold on I'm actually doing a podcast now in a second can and I don't want to just assume I don't want all our listeners as well to just um maybe just assume everyone knows what does it mean like what does it mean uh, it's it's becoming like a buzzword uh, I mean I guess uh, it includes things such as, um, you know, monitoring, um, telemetry, um, you know, understanding how your, you know, resources are being used from sort of like, you know, if you, if you had like a native cloud-based app, for example, you'd want to know how, um, you know, how you're scaling, you know, how the communication is flowing between 
um, various things. You know, it can include things such as intrusion detection, um, and then it sort of flows into um, alerting and notifications such that, you know, you, you have a good understanding of what the actual system is is doing. Uh, it becomes particularly important when you're sort of migrating from, say, a monolith to microservices or you're dealing with a reasonably complicated, um, you know, enterprise environment because you, have st you start to have lots of moving parts. You, you start to have things like uh, cascading failures where a downstream service starts to cause substream services to fail and in order to be able to um, support or this infrastructure and, and, and whatnot, you need to be able to understand what's going on. So, you know, application monitoring, infrastructure monitoring, um, um, performance, you know, monitoring. And uh, I mean, even uh, automated testing can be used, non-destructive automated testing post-release verification type of tests. They're, they're also a form of, um, you know, monitoring, you know, they're sort of like that that spectrum at the, at the far end of the spectrum. So this is sort of like all, you know, uh, would be covered under observability. Reason. Thank you. The, the, the way that I look at it is, is it's an interesting concept, concept mm. because the same as platform engineering, it depends on the industry, depends on the maturity of the yeah. business that they will look at it. Um, the way that we've been trying to put the perspective to in the, at DevOps one with our customers is that you have the different levels of maturity in our organizations. So some organizations will understand that they do reporting and that's one of the ways that they do observability. So they do the BR reporting, they understand how flows of uh, or how value streams are the uh, building, um, are, are generating revenue and how applications are working. Then when you start to look at engineering, uh, engineering first companies is when you look at more the application performance management, synthetic monitoring, and more about the the technology itself. But then when you think about the word observability, you can observe anything. And to Paul's point, you could observe how the, how the quality is being um, built by building synthetic monitors or non-destructive uh, automated tests to understand how something works. Or you can understand how an application is behaving um, with with business traffic. Um, now, when we look at security, you can like a, look around, okay, you're observing around what vulnerabilities are present in your environment and what which of those ones are more likely to be exploited. And then when you look also at like Dora metrics and flow, you can even have tools now that observe what is your um, time to market and, and how quickly you, you can deliver uh, within your value streams. So I, the way that I look at observability is, again, this wraparound of how you can pull information or information is given to you automatically um, to make an informed decision. Nice. Thank you. Um, I think it actually brings us on nicely. Um, I'll jump over one of your topics and come back to it in a second, um, Alejandro. Um, and let's talk about typical scenarios leading to formation of platform engineering team and tribe um, and kind of how do you recognize how do you recognize this across different company different companies different industries uh, products but Paul you brought this one to us and, and I think everyone else did as well but if you want to take away and tell me like what in what scenarios do you start to form this platform yeah I guess um, so I've been involved in a number of sort of scale up you know, type of organizations and uh it's sort of like understanding or recognizing 
um, you know, when is the time right to introduce, um, you know, a platform engineering team or, or, or tribe? Um, and I mean, I've experienced a, a couple of, you know, scenarios and I've tried to sort of categorize them. Um, I'm sure mm-hmm. there's more, but, um, uh, you know, that some of the ones that I've um, encountered include, um, so the organization is starting to, to struggle with, um, you know, productivity as they're growing and they're finding that okay. they're adding additional engineers, but they're not getting, you know, a proportional increase. Um, also, um, companies might be experiencing a lot of, um, you know, a, a lack of operational maturity sort of comes back to bite at a certain point in time where they can't do a release without having to revert it and there's data loss and they're, they're, the amount of toil that they're doing, the amount of unplanned work that they're, they're doing is increasing mm. you know, reasonably um, significantly as a, as a proportion. Um, or, you know, you, you might say, for example, uh, as an organization, you want to start to target as your customer some, you know, larger scale enterprise types of organizations and, uh, you know, they'll require, you know, SOC 2 compliance or, or some sort of like, you know, compliance to, to demonstrate your, you know, operational maturity. Um, and so these sort of scenarios are um, the types of scenarios which would say, okay, there's enough, there's a good justification now to be able to, you know, uh, hive off a proportion of our engineering team and start to specialize in a particular area which isn't directly focused on, um, you know, just product enhancements and product features and, um, you know, you need to have enough sort of, I guess, ammunition to be able to convince the business that not only will, you know, total productivity go up, but you'll also have, you know, these these additional benefits around, you know, risk compliance, operational maturity, reliability, and, um, you know, security and things like that. Um, yeah, so that, that there were three sort of scenarios that I um, had thought of, um, kind of Brilliant. like an, an enables you to produce like a business case and then present that to the business in order to, you know, kick off um, a team or a tribe. Brilliant. Alejandro, David, what are you thinking in terms of sort of scenarios that you've seen that led into this formation? You um, go first, Alejandro. I'm going to have a candidate <laughs> field take on this. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, no worries. <laughs> I think based of what I've seen over the last five years is the desire of companies to move from a um, project model to a product model, right? And okay. is and what it means is the organization acknowledges that they want to to change the way that they look at the value stream. So and that's pretty much what I had to do the last two jobs on regards to moving enterprises to to look at one that that um, platform engineering teams for a quality perspective because they were looking at they were doing the project work where they were just sending people to do work and then bring it back versus actually looking at the structure where they were able to have this platform engineering team that was delivering specific capabilities um for, for them to deliver into their body stream so i think that's one that I see is happening quite common. Is it the right time or the right way? I'm not sure, but that's probably a scenario yeah. that I've seen in the industry that is happening as part of that. Interesting. I've actually heard that quite a bit as well. They're like flipping their whole process of their why rather than rather than being that sort of project. It's like we're building a product and then you have to like re- re-engineer it essentially. Really interesting. Thanks, Alejandro. All right, go for it, David. <laughs> so, so my take is actually from when I was working at Red Hat 
And okay. um, when I was there, I think it was 2011, they they had this big hairy goal when they first created Red Hat in the 90s. It came out of the University of North Carolina. And they, they sat there and they said, we're going to make a billion dollars a year from open source software. That was their insane goal. And it was either 2011 or 2012. They actually did it. They got a billion dollars in recurring revenue wow. from from open source software. And the Brisbane team, we actually rented SeaWorld and went down and had a party. It was it oh was pretty wild. God. But anyway, th then that year, 2011, they they created a product called OpenShift. They acquired a company called Makara and created a product called OpenShift, which is one of the first platform as a service offerings. And it was yeah. based on Docker, which was brand new at the time. And the idea was rather than you going to Amazon, spinning up an EC2 virtual machine, installing Apache on it, installing Java or PHP or whatever, and then shipping your code, you'd just create a Docker container, push it to a repo, and it would magically run in the cloud. And, and back then, this was a brand new idea. Yeah. Um, and they were doing that because they could see that if they didn't do it, the cloud service providers were going to completely eat that market. Nobody was going to pay for Red Hat Enterprise Linux subscriptions anymore when you just rent a virtual machine per hour from Amazon. And especially once Amazon provides a platform as a service for you that you just push code to, the underlying open source software vendor is completely irrelevant. So they created it in response to these market conditions. And at the time, I was a real naysayer. I thought this thing was insane. The security team, we had a massive problem because in order to make it um, get market traction, they gave a free tier away where you could run a little sample app. And of course, everybody just used it to mine crypto. And we constantly had to go around shutting down these crypto mining PaaS applications. But as of the start of 2023, they now make a billion dollars a year just from OpenShift. So, so wow. the strategy actually worked. Um, anyway, I just thought that was a separate view of how yeah. from a software vendor's perspective, you had to create a platform rather than from an application perspective. That's awesome. Actually, you know, it brings us really, really nicely onto our next topic because like what you talked about there is almost recognizing um, sort of like cost saving scenarios as well. Um, and the cloud, I know a lot of people have gone onto cloud and then platform engineering teams are trying to pull away from the cloud for different scenarios and different reasons around costing and data and so on. But um, back to Alejandro's point, so so founding model, how can you cost a team that has no direct revenue? So this sort of brings us on to that whole costing and recognizing, I suppose, maybe like a business case um, for these platform engineering teams. Take it away, Alejandro. Yeah, so I think the funding model is one of the biggest challenges around trying to build the platform engineering teams because, to, to my point, it's really hard to have a direct correlation to to the value that it brings. Um, probably it's easier on a, uh, when a company is selling software, so like to the Red Hat OpenShift model, that makes yeah. sense because it was addressing that opportunity or the, the, or addressing the, the business, the, the, um, the changes in the industry. But when you look at enterprises, they because they sell a product, they don't see the benefit of the platform. They just see the yeah. benefit of the product. So I think it is really, um, so, so there's a few ways that that I've seen organizations do it, which is the very old model where everybody chips in towards that platform team and then they start to deliver the capabilities. Um, otherwise, these, um, it, it, it is more around a subscription model where different 
places that consume different consumptions of that platform pay for those services. Um, those are the only models I've seen being implemented. Either mm. right or wrong it is really hard to tell because mm. I think they both have the advantages and disadvantages. Um, and again, it, it all depends on the organization and the value stream that, or where is the revenue coming within your organization, being a product or a software? Right. It's um, it is actually very difficult because it is it isn't always like an, a, a direct um, um, path. Um, I, I find um, it's good to attack it on two fronts. The first one is to talk about what the the value is um, by introducing it, and the second is to talk about the cost of not introducing it. Um, and if you've got sort of historic statistics that you can look at and you can sort of like, you know, farm the right way, you can talk about like the the frequency of security incidents, the frequency of production incidents and how they're increasing. You can talk about like the, 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 the rate at which, you know, features are being released and how that's decreasing. And you can sort of like, you can extrapolate. Obviously this is not sustainable. Um, I like to use the word sustainable because um, without using, you know, it, it's obvious that if it's not sustainable and it's unsustainable, which means that, well, we can't keep doing this. So um, to switch to more sustainable, you know, development practices and having, uh, you know, a platform sort of tribe. Um, and then and then in order to be able to sell the positives, well, it's a little bit, it's a little bit um, more indirect and it's not an exact science, but it's certainly a lot that you can do in terms of, um, you know, saying, well, if we had a, you know, small percentage of developer productivity and we had, you know, reduction of these things and how do you quantify reputational damage, for example, and all of these different types of things and, and then and bundling that up. And I think having something like the Dora report, which provides, mm. you know, pretty solid, I mean, it's an aggregate, but it provides pretty compelling evidence that, um, you know, the, these aren't just made up numbers. Do you think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sort of two two comments. The first is from the perspective of a of a tech company, just to run with that story from from Red Hat. Mm. At at the time in the early 2010s when OpenShift was being built, the organizational politics were tensioned between the core Linux developers and the OpenShift developers, because the Linux developers were making money hand over fist, but they weren't getting any of it back invested in their product. It was all getting invested in OpenShift because management could see that that was the future. And in hindsight, it was the correct business decision um in in an organization where you're you know you're not selling the the platform you're selling what you build on top of the platform yeah. i think it is necessary for it to be a sunk cost and in the same sense as for a software vendor it was a sunk cost with future returns it is for for an enterprise as well so i i spoke a few times about point in time assessments that you need to do if you don't have observability built into your platform or quality built into your platform in order to assess the individual products that you build, you buy down that ongoing cost through the sunk cost of building out a platform. You no longer need yeah. to engage a third-party pen tester or auditor or whatever yeah. it is by doing that. So I think there is there is a necessary step of accepting that it is a sunk cost, but that sunk cost can be presented as buying down future recurring costs. But yeah, you, you can do um, some financial tricks as well. Like it's 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 harder, particularly nowadays, to claim you know platform oriented activities under research and development. Um, you know claims 
But if you're building it as um, an asset, then it is something that you can capitalize, which means that you can depreciate it. So there is a tax lens to it. Um, so okay. if you uh, sit down with your CFO and sell them, you might have another advocate internally within the organization. That, that is a great lens. And I've heard several things from the tech world about these, like you said, R&D and, and capitalizing assets, various financial mechanisms. And I think that's really important. Like as computer nerds, we tend to lack that curiosity to also be finance nerds. You don't have to do it all day, every day, but just do a little bit of research about some of the things that Paul was just talking about. It can be hugely beneficial to your ability to actually get this stuff off the ground in an organization. I was literally just going to ask the question, like, you know, if you go to sell a product and having a proper platform, does it make it like, you know, more attractable, um, valued more than maybe a similar product on the market? Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's what you're saying. So the big picture is, is that if you've got a good platform behind the product or, you know, the processes behind it, will it sell better than the next product doesn't? I, I think um, if, if you, it d depends on the buyer persona. If you're talking to um, a bank and you can yeah. use that as, um, um, you know, um, as, as part of how you deliver the quality of your service and demonstrate operational maturity, um, it's, um, it's certainly um, relevant. Um, in general, probably not so much because people will just use the product and they don't really care or know what's happening underneath. Um, but yeah, it depends on the buyer persona. Brilliant. David, did you want to add something else there? No, nope. I was just giving a thumbs up in the background yeah. to what Paul yeah. was saying. But I think <laughs> it depends on the buyer persona. If you're selling me a subscription to a product like Jira and I'm a five-person tech startup, don't really care. If you're selling it to me and I'm the biggest bank in the country, very much care. Okay, cool. So this takes us on to then. So we have, say, we've, we've got the business case. You've got your CEO on board, for example. Um, uh, we now are going to look at getting a platform engineering team started. I know it's going to be different across different industries, but like where does it kind of stem from? I know we spoke about observability is like the key piece, the recipe. But how do you actually get the, that engineering team started? Where does it all begin? I really like a model that I saw, um, which was creating a portal for engineers to talk about their problems and for them to yeah. vote. So okay. then you can understand what is the common challenge within the organization that you can tackle. Mm -hmm. And then based on the vote, look at the priority to start to mitigate and throw investment at it. So it is a very agile mindset of look at what is it that you need to resolve that's going to bring you more more benefit for the community first um, and then on the side I think as we mentioned earlier if you add your observability from the beginning then it is able to to actually report and understand and make decisions afterwards that's mm -hmm. kind of so when I look at it is look at two more like two two benefits first how you can report on it to the future, get the investment. And then the second part is look at what is it, what everybody in the community is asking for more help. Relents. Um, I've got a couple of experiences here. The first one is based at uh, Tyro, uh, where I was brought on board to help you know, migrate software from on-premises to cloud and you know, from monolith to microservices to introduce DevOps and automation practices, you build it, you run it, you know, mentality. 
um, and, and they're a bank, um, not as big as CBA, obviously. Um, and, um, you know, so basically the strategy there was we would form an initial uh, team that comprised both the product development um, engineers and the, you know, the, the DevOps platform um, engineers and together form a shared genesis, um, get all the ways of working um, embedded in the DNA and sort of like bring people that have sort of had more of an operational focus to have a better empathy and understanding of the development side of things and uh, and vice versa. Get that team rolling um, um, for about three um, months and then you can sort of like, you can do this you know biological cell division where those teams then split but because they come from a shared sort of genesis and shared DNA, um, they have that that empathy for one another, um, and uh, and that, that was a very successful sort of mechanism of doing it. You didn't have this sort of like two worlds evolving independently of one another. Yeah. Um, I think also um, as things sort of scale, um, secondments work very well. So having people that are working from both the um, you know platform engineering side, working with the product teams. And actually using the platform, having the frustrations associated with using the platform, um, and, um, and and getting that empathy. And additionally, um, people from the the product world working on sort of like more of the DevOps and platform side of things, and bringing that more you know supportability and operations mindset to the the product development side. So, so comments work uh, quite well um, as well. I think in terms yeah. of go ahead. Oh, I just I just wanted to comment on the shared genesis component and and I think that is really important. One of the challenges that we've had as a venture scaler is that that works initially. When you start to build things from scratch, you can have that shared genesis and shared technology stack. Once we start to build new things and especially acquire things that are already built, that's when it starts to become really challenging because yeah. the fundamental design decisions that we've put into our platform, you acquire a company because the technology fits and the financial model fits and and blah, 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 blah. But then when you dig under the hood, you say, actually, there's these architectural yeah. decisions that we've made fundamentally differently in our platform and retrofitting what you've built into that is really, really hard. And then you get the cultural issues where people in that um that team may not want to migrate and might put up resistance to migration. It's a difficult problem to solve. And I also wanted to just second what you said about secondments. One of the ways to solve that is to get secondments from the core platform team into that individual engineering team so they can bring across some of the thinking that was behind what was done there. Sorry to cut yeah. you off. No, no, all good. I think um, Brilliant. there's no sort of like one size sort of fits all. And I think... Um, my initial topic was around what are the typical scenarios that would trigger the formation of a platform squad or tribe and the the milestones and the ways of working that you would subsequently choose would you know heavily be influenced by you know what was the initial you know problem that you were trying to trying to solve um so i think for um the the, the project that at tyre the shared genesis worked you know particularly well because that was a, that was a specific you know, scenario that it would that it would work well with. Um, I think um, if you if you had sort of like you know you want to achieve SOC two compliance or something like that, then uh, you know you you could potentially adopt a different you know model. Things like the service owner checklist that we spoke about before, and you know having the platform deliver on those things is also a good sort of milestone to set. 
Um, anyway, I think I'm taking time away from David and security, so I'll shut up. <laughs> no, no. Um, this is excellent, guys. Um, but yeah, does anybody else want to add anything else to that particular piece? Okay. So yes, David, um, take it away and uh, kick us off on the security side of this and what that all means. Yeah. Very important. It, it is. And I think it's a specialization of everything that we've just spoken about. So, yeah. so we've talked about the importance of building in attributes of quality, attributes of observability. And I think security is just a specialized application of those attributes. But it's one that does have its own nuances and that can have really spectacular consequences if if you get it wrong. Typically, the consequence of getting some sort of quality parameter other than security wrong is that you'll get an outage for six hours and you'll lose some money and you might get something bad in the press. A cybersecurity incident is typically significantly more impactful. It's less likely, but it's also significantly more impactful than that. So it's something that you get a lot of um, a lot of pressure to get right. Um, there's also a strong cultural element to getting security right. So you can build all of these things into the platform. You can have DevSecOps pipelines. You can have your database encrypted at rest. You can have um, all these sort of things. But if you haven't established the engineering culture that security is important, these things will be circumvented. A classic example of that would be checks that you have in a DevSecOps pipeline that could be baked into the platform that say, we do static analysis or we do software composition analysis. Whenever there's a finding, we flag it. Typically, it's not within the control of the platform engineering team to figure out exactly what's done with that finding. You might say every time there is a greater than or equal to medium risk finding out of the static code analysis part of the pipeline scanning, it files a ticket. But then what's actually done with that ticket might be up to the individual engineering team and you have limited control. Because if you just block that code from, from working every time you get a finding, you're going to shut down developers' productivity yeah. and they're all going to hate you. Um, so that cultural transfer is part of it that I think is is really curious and gets to the people and team element of this, that no matter what technology you put into the platform in order to do security, you need to get that that culture and mindset across. The whole way through. Yeah. The whole way through. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. something that I've I've found um to be really interesting for me personally. And I think one of the ways that we've been able to do that successfully in a few organizations that I've worked at is by having a security team who by and large have been developers. Otherwise, you can wind up with very much this us and them yeah. mentality between security and engineers and that that security this are the cops a... and they're always just issuing me with speeding tickets and I was only going five <laughs> kilometers over the limit, won't you just leave me alone um, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anyone you know else had any thoughts on that from maybe the outside looking in, not being necessarily a security person, how you perceive it and how we should act in order to get security right in a platform engineering context. I, I think we're lucky because we had the LogJ4 incident that right. affected so many people. So it is fresh on people's mind of what happens when you don't embed security or have a platform. So okay. if you look at if the, a company that had adopted a platform, a platform engineering team where security was within the scope, they would have been able to resolve that problem pretty quickly because it would have been identified, resolved. Then you look at places where they wouldn't have done anything into their organization and then 
this affected them. They had to then first go and find out who has the vulnerability, then go and patch every single service of the vulnerability. So then it is a very fresh in mind scenario to help. So we're lucky because I think before that, people would have thought, our oh, security, we're fine. There's, there's a report that happens. So from the outside, I think we've just been lucky to have that experience. I think that's that's a really interesting example. I, I spoke earlier about how investing in platform engineering can buy down future cost of doing point-in-time activities. And I think that's, um, that's a really good example of it, that if you'd done security platform engineering well, then Log4j would have just been a matter of going to your software composition analysis tool and saying, we are affected or we're not, roll the patches, done. If you didn't have it, it would have been days or weeks of a lot of people's time and costs measured in many, many thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, yeah. yeah. I certainly find that um, I'm, I'm more from the software, you know, product, you know, development side and um, I'm very active in reaching out to the security team, forming a strong relationship uh, with the security team. And there's a, a good opportunity to meet, um, you know, in the middle. Not everybody is as, you know, forward thinking as David with regards to automation. And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, forming those relationships and whatnot, that can help quite a lot. Brilliant. And something there you asked, David, it, you know, your security team, the skill sets that come with those people, you know, should they come from a dev background? I'm actually really interested to kind of know what is, what makes up a the skills within a security team and then what are the sort of the general skills that sits within the platform team? Because, you know, it's yeah. a bit of everything. Um, but I, I don't think in order to be a good security person, you have to have been a software engineer. That would, that would be too broad a statement. I just think it's <laughs> beneficial to have some people in the security team that have that background yeah, and Paul used the term earlier, empathy. I think that's why, because okay. you can sit there and say, "I've been a developer where other people <laughs> made my life really hard. I get what you're going through, and Fair I don't enough, want to yeah. put you through that." I yeah. think that's that's why it's important. Um, but then you need other people that can have different skills because security also deals with not just code but people and systems. Yeah. And to have to have those skills, and then typically in any large enterprise organization, you've got an, another layer of abstraction on top of security, which is the risk lens, and being able yeah. to effectively interface with that and communicate to senior leadership that you're actually managing security risks effectively. And the people that have spent a lot of time writing code and are really good at being empathetic with developers are not necessarily, but less likely to be good at that. And that's a whole that other part. skill set in and of itself. Brilliant. This is pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, I know there was something you mentioned in our last chat um, and you gave me the analogy of the fridge. Um, <laughs> can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, um, the, I know you, the, kitchen, your... the kitchen analogy. So maybe this yeah. is a good way to sum up everything that we've just been talking about. Yeah. This is this is an analogy that we we came up with um, a while back. And that that is that Imagine you're running a kitchen as a standalone hospitality business. Everything is bespoke. You buy a fridge, you buy a knife, you buy a bench, and everything is done the way the chef says it's done. And then the complete opposite of the spectrum is like McDonald's. Everything is completely systematized, standardized. A person who runs an individual McDonald's franchise doesn't have to worry whether the fridge is set to the correct temperature and whether that's safe and whether that's legal because it just came from McDonald's and it's all set 
you know, automatically the way it should be. And so I view the process of building a platform is analogous to the process of McDonald'sizing or systematizing your kitchen. And you can do that piece by piece. You can create a fridge where it's only going to have temperature within certain parameters. You can create standards by which things are cut to certain measurements, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of, uh, we, we use the analogy in this of cooking meat because it has safety properties. It has to be kept within a certain temperature. And then when it's cooked, it has to be raised to a certain temperature in order to kill the bacteria. And so then the instrumentation is like the meat thermometer where you test the temperature of it and say, aha, it's now been cooked to X degrees and all the bacteria has been killed. It's safe to serve. That's an example of observability and instrumentation. So we just found it to be a useful uh, metaphor or thought process for this. Nice. And what is XStack? So, <laughs> so XStack is, we, we've built two things at uh, X15. One of them is XStack, which is the platform. And the other is XGraph, which is the observability lens. So XStack right. is what would standardize your database has encryption at risk, your DevSecOps pipeline has software composition analysis in it. And XGraph is what interrogates those properties and then presents them mapped to controls in a formal risk framework. So you can say you're meant to have this control that is DevSecOps pipeline is applying security checks, and that's actually measured and then presented in a dashboard. Brilliant. Anyone got any questions on that or add to that or give any scenarios you've got similar ideas around how you might do it? No. <laughs> no, I think it's like it's it's if you look if you look at it, that's that's a really good summary of how how mm. it, it looks at and the capabilities and observer, which is what we've been talking. So I don't think there's much more that, that can be added to it. Um, yeah. I, I guess apart from just understanding that not everybody can get to that level straight away. You'll have yeah. to go through the maturity the and uh, the journey. So it, I think that's one of the key learnings that I've had over the years is that as much as I love the final end, yeah. there's always a journey that will take you. Yeah. Brilliant. All right, guys. And the last point, um, you believe now, I think, uh, Davey, you're kind of talking around the evolution of DevOps, DevSecOps, DevRiskOps is the new term. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I came to with this kitchen analogy was we originally built, if I go back to what um, Red Hat was building with OpenShift, that was DevOps. Yeah. That you, rather than you spin up a Linux VM, install software, deploy code, you merge that all together into a container and just push it to a platform, it's immutable, mm. etc. The next evolution on top of that was DevSecOps, where you added security scanning to a DevOps pipeline. And my view is that since security is a specialization of risk or by the other lens, risk is an abstraction of security, what you get to is Dev risk ops, where it's not just security that's built into the pipeline, but all other risk parameters, be they things that pertain to software quality, software availability, et cetera. And that's where I think we're headed with this. Amazing. Anyone like to add anything? that guys nah just fascinating how the, the terminology keeps changing and and you got the secops sitting ops qa ops uh chat yeah. ops ai so i think <laughs> maybe in six years time either it'll be quite long or it might be something like 
AI just encapsulating everything, but yeah, you know, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It just moves so quickly. I think it comes back a little bit to um, observability as well. Um, in, yeah. in my mind, um, a lot of risk management is, um, you know, weighing up risk versus reward. Um, and the only way to weigh those things up is if you've got data. And, you know, the way that you get that data is by observability. And it's all right, guys. Well, I know you're all super busy. Um, so I think we'll leave it there for now. But I just want to say thank you all for joining me on this pretty incredible podcast. Um, and we've covered some very interesting insights surrounding such a relevant topic, um, you know, around the journey of building your platform engineering team. Um, but thank you all for listening. And I look forward to catching you all next time on the Evolution Exchange podcast. Thank you. Thank you.